This is The Finch. This is Heritage 4. I don't believe that we can simply arrest our way out of problems. We've tried that. Hey, I'm Alex. And I'm Will. You're listening to a Heritage episode on The Finch. These Heritage episodes are a special edition where we talk about the origins and the backgrounds of local Athenian businesses and community leaders. Athens always. Information always. This is Heritage. Here on The Finch, you've heard from some of the most world-renowned chefs and local business icons. But as we approach November, we'd also like to bring on more and more political candidates so that you can learn more about what is happening in the Athens scene. Sergeant John Q. Williams has served as a dispatcher, trainer, resource officer, police officer, and investigator in Athens and Charlotte. In May 2019, he announced his bid for sheriff in Athens, and in June 2020, he won the primary against 20-year incumbent Ira Edwards. In November, he takes on Robert Hare, the Republican nominee. He's on this episode of The Finch to talk about the police, his platform, and race. First of all, I would like to congratulate you for your recent victory in the Democratic primary for sheriff. And then uh, I would also like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. As our first question to start off this interview, could you just describe your background uh, growing up in Gary, Indiana, and how that's influenced your your views on policing? Uh, Much like a lot of people, I think... uh, Sometimes people don't focus on where you were born and, you know, the, the lessons that you learn early in life and childhood. Uh, Gary taught me a lot of things. Uh, survival is one, but also uh, I was face to face with a lot of things. I didn't have a word for it then, but uh, even before my teens, I started learning what injustice was, uh, what it was like to be uh, basically targeted uh, based on anything but your actual behaviors, uh, be it race, be it religion, uh, uh, financial status, uh, your job. Uh, So I learned those things at an early age from uh, personal, but also experiences with my family, uh, my friends in school, uh, but noticed that the school system was different. I actually was fortunate enough uh, when I was in elementary school to qualify for accelerated classes. Uh, we called it the a gifted and talented program. And uh, that's basically was a track system for accelerated classes. And I was in that uh, program from the third grade until I graduated high school. Uh, we had a lot of different experiences. It was really about preparing us for college and beyond. And even with that, being what people would consider, I guess, a nerd or a geek or a a neek or a gerd, however you want to blend that together to call it, uh, that was me. But I also, you know, had that social aspect. So I had plenty of friends. I played uh, sports. I'm not even for, I mean, well, I played Little League and I stopped playing organized sports when I got into high school. But I got into theater. I played basketball with my friends after school. I was a regular kid, aside from just being a little bit more focused on academics. Uh, but I still had interactions with uh, the police that weren't really indicative of the things that you would expect for somebody that was an academic. When I tell a story, uh, my first real date where I got to drive, 
Uh, and Gary, again, it's a city that is greatly African-American population. At that time, it was over 90%. Uh, we also were uh, on the verge of being murder capital of the world because of the amount of homicides that we had uh, per capita. It was about 130, 40,000 people in Gary when I was growing up. And at one point, we were having over 100 homicides per year. Uh, and that was a shocking number. But even with that, uh, I'll go back to the story of this date. I'm driving, and my mom had a 1989 Riviera. We called it the Enterprise because it was kind of like uh, futuristic for us. It was uh, in 89, and you guys look pretty young. I guess you probably can't imagine that in 1989, somebody had a car that had a dashboard monitor that actually controlled the audio settings and the mileage. It shows you the direction, but that's what it was. And a you know a young black male driving that obviously caught the attention of the police every time. Uh, this girl, my first date with her, we got pulled over. They said that they just wanted to check the insurance status. There was nothing wrong. The tax came back. We had the paperwork. But just that experience alone was enough to end that day. Uh, I don't know. That could have been my future wife. I'm happy with what I've got now. But it took me a lot, long time to find happiness. So I always look back to that moment as something kind of changed my life. And that was a lot of things in Gary. Just didn't add up right in you know, you felt that you were targeted based on the color of your skin when most people in that city had similar uh, background and culture. So it, it kind of felt like the world was set up against us at that time. And and sort of going off of that, with these uh, sort of adverse interactions with police at an early age, what made you want to then transition later on to taking up this profession of being in law enforcement? It, just, it was never a plan. And, I, and I'll tell you this, when I was growing up, the only thing I thought about uh, law enforcement was, you know, when we played cops and robbers, uh, when we watched TV, some things were cool. I wanted to be a detective, but uh, some of the old shows I watched, uh, Spencer for Hire, a man uh, called Hulk, um, those shows back then were detective shows. So I thought that aspect was cool. I never knew that that wasn't how you started off as an officer. But when I moved down to Athens, I actually got a job at the University of Georgia Police Department. I didn't know what it was. Uh, it turned out it was for a, a dispatcher. And I just kind of started there. And there's this um, class that I teach. And one of the theories we talk about how, how to overcome bias is this concept of the positive contact theory. Well, my story of getting into law enforcement really hinges on that concept itself. And basically it says that enough positive interactions with groups that you may not have a lot in common with kind of lead to you having less bias just from those interactions and understanding how you're the same as opposed to just thinking about differences. So that's kind of how I got going. Um, I started, you know, having friends that were police officers, uh, going to lunch, going to dinner with them, meeting their families, and you start realizing that people are human beings. And it's very, very um, more relaxing once you realize that and you don't have to worry about some of the things that you see on TV. I learned that a lot of those things are not true. And going forward, once I actually became an officer, I definitely can tell you what you see on TV is not true. We don't you know, have a quota of people that we shoot every day like Bruce Willis and Die Hard. Uh, most officers never 
even if they pull their gun, most officers end up their career without ever firing a shot. So that's just not the reality of what policing is day to day. It's much more, uh, you know, that social work, uh, trying to help people figure out how to resolve their disputes because you have to understand people are going through trauma. It's an emergency for them at that time. It's a crisis. And basically what we do, we respond to crisis. Uh, for some people, you know, just having a car accident, uh, a minor fender bender for the first time, that's the biggest crisis that they might have in their life. And that's the reason I'm still in it because every time you help somebody, uh, you know, it just it just feels like you build this aura around yourself. And that's a good feeling to know. Um, one thing, and I know this is a little bit off topic, but um, I kind of gauge myself uh, each and every day. I try to start the morning fresh. And by the end of the day, I look in the mirror or wherever I'm at. I meditate a little bit and I say, hey, did I do more harm than good? Did I help somebody? Was I true to myself? And if I can give myself a decent grade at the end of the night, I sleep well. Sometimes when I don't, when I fail, when I may have had a bad conversation or, you know, said something I shouldn't have to somebody, that's my moment to self-reflect and try to do better the next day. It was last week that we interviewed uh, John Rappaport at um, uh, the University of Chicago for our police brutality episode. And he said one of his main takeaways was that the police have become the sort of Swiss army knife. I'm air quoting, which is hard to do on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he said that uh, police serve a bunch of roles that uh, may be suited for better, um, better task forces. Do you, what do you think of this, uh, this view? And do you believe that we should heed these calls to defund the police and uh, allocate them towards other social services instead? Okay, I, I, I agree with a lot of these sentiments. Uh, and if we just go back through history, we look at the, some of the things that the police have, have picked up. And I can tell you as an officer, a lot of these things we didn't ask for, and they just kind of fell into our lap. Uh, one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with uh, is mental health across the board. And those are a lot of the people that we are called to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, where at some point we had funding, we had all these services for mental health, we had facilities where people could go uh, and actually have shelter to have people monitor them, make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do, whether it's a, a prescription, whether it's just uh, somebody watching what they're doing every day and knowing if they're getting worse, having counseling, having some guidance. But when those facilities started shutting down and lost funding, all of a sudden everybody said, well, what are we going to do? Well, oh, well, let's call the police. And that's kind of been that uh, experience from what I've seen. Uh, when I was growing up, we didn't call the police for everything. Some of that's cultural. Some of that was trust issues. But all in all, if our kids didn't want to go to school, the parents and the community took care of that. Uh, we don't have that kind of uh, village raising a child mentality no more. And I think that's hurt us a lot. Now, I will stop short of saying uh, defund the police. And it's not just because I'm biased and, you know, that's the field I'm in. I do feel like at some point we can get to that but in this country, we're not quite there yet. I think in order to get to that point, unfortunately, we're going to have to spend a lot more money and have a lot more resources towards getting there. So I think the defunding at some point may happen, but it's going to cost us a lot to get there. Uh, because even right now, if we want to send social workers or uh, mental health workers into situations, if there's any potential threats, you're still going to have to have 
police respond with them. Uh, let's just say the example of somebody's threatening to, this is Athens, or somebody's threatening to commit suicide by jumping off a bridge over the bypass. Well, you got somebody to go and talk to them. Yes, we need social workers, we need case workers. But if they go, they don't have the authority to stop traffic. So the traffic on the bypass is still going to go if it's just them. So you still need at least two or three officers there to stop traffic in the event something does happen. And then if that person unfortunately does decide to either assault that person that's talking to them, you need a couple more officers to deal with that. Or if they do, in fact, uh, make that move and jump off of the bridge, you still need officers. Um, it's great. And in a perfect world, we could have social workers just respond and they could, you know, do what they need to do. But on some situations, not all, there are going to be some that they could just resolve without us. But in the situation where somebody might have a knife or a gun or just be uh, under influence of drugs, there's going to be a need to have something more than just your words. Words are important. We train officers all the time. People don't understand. We do do um, bias training against bias. We do uh, mental health training. In Athens, Clark County, we have programs like that. We have de-escalation training. And every time something happens that doesn't go the way that we feel it should, that doesn't have the best result, we put more training in place. We look at it from different angles to try to see how next time we can do better. And I think that's what's important. And I think it's more important to reform and configure how we're doing this training and how the police respond to their jobs and how we can, I guess, make sure that what people say is the bad apples are weeded out by some form of fashion. Uh, by and large, there's uh, um, over a million contacts between police and citizens each year. And the violent encounters are in the low hundreds. So it's not good anytime somebody's life is lost and anytime we fail and we can't get that to happen, then we got to look at what we can do better. But ultimately, a lot of police officers, a lot of agencies are getting it right a lot more than they're getting it wrong. I'd like to briefly talk about what we can do to uh, better address discrimination in police. Um, some of the latest public data from uh, uh, race in uh, police departments themselves from 2013 indicate that the uh, athens Clark Police Department is um, around 14%, uh, has 14% black uh, officers and, and, and staff, whereas the, the black population share in Athens is around 25, 26%. Uh, one common um, idea that's been thrown around is the idea of representative bureaucracy. And you yourself have talked about uh, staffing police in order to make them more representative of the area they represent. Can you talk about that, uh, not only in Gary, but um, if you are elected as the sheriff, how you would do that in Athens and what role that would have? I think the, the first thing to do is to address the stigma. Uh, there's a lot of things and there's a lot of images and just ideas of police in general that I don't think are fair, uh, but I can understand where they come from. Uh, there's been a lot of officers throughout history that have made wrong decisions, that have shown to not be ready or able to be held to that higher standard. And once those people are out, I understand that people still use those examples of what police is to them, because a lot of people never have an interaction with officers. So all they have, have to go on is what a friend had happened to them or what they saw on television. Uh, so 
the thing that I want to do is make sure that we have community oriented policing from a standpoint that we can build these relationships between the community and law enforcement. I think that's the most important thing that we can do and being transparent. So when we're having training, when we're doing this bias training, so make sure we can overcome and not police with bias, then we invite the community out to see how we're training, to see what we're teaching. And then we have those dialogues going between the community and the police and the same training. And if we're saying something wrong, if we're not being true to the idea and concept, the citizens are right there to say, hey, wait a minute, what about this? And we welcome that. We have to have that level of transparency so that we can just exchange those ideas so we can build those relationships. And I think if we can get that, then we can make it more, I guess, acceptable and prestigious like it once was uh, to be an officer or a deputy. So that's part of my plan. I wanna get officers back out there not just driving out around with cars, with their windows up, uh, just getting out of car when it's time to find somebody with a warrant or to arrest somebody. We need to just be out in the community, just talking. Uh, we've had times in, in Athens, you can tell uh, tales of old police officers that have since retired, but uh, you talk about, if you say pipe man, certain areas of Nellie B. Holmes, everybody's going to know exactly who you talked about. It's uh, uh, Officer Holman that retired a few years ago. Uh, I've got a few family members that used to be police officers, and it's the same thing. When you walk a beat, when you just get out and talk to people, when you play with the kids, when you have community events, when you show up at schools and talk to people, when you're approachable, that builds trust in the community. And then people don't have a problem with saying, hey, okay, I want to be a police officer. And their family and friends don't, you know, look down upon it and say, oh man, you're going to be a sellout. When you do things the right way, people will support you. But I want to make sure that people that are actually in this community that are invested will join us in some form or fashion. Maybe you don't want to be an officer. Maybe you want to be uh, in detention. Maybe you want to work the jail. Maybe you just want to be a receptionist. Maybe you want to have a non-sworn position but working for sheriff's office or even so we can get back to that. In building these community relations, I guess it's a particularly difficult time, especially with the recent killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Um, first of all, what are your thoughts on the, what are your reactions to those occurrences? And then um, as an African-American yourself and also a police officer, it seems as if there's, there's this disconnect between policing and uh, minority communities, what are, how are you going to bridge that gap between those two? Um, and then how are you going to, as you said, build that trust between the communities, especially pertaining to minorities and low income communities? I think, again, it starts with transparency. You have to be open. You have to be willing to uh, acknowledge when you've made a mistake or when you didn't get it right. So that, that's the, that's number one. When we don't get it right, we're going to come right out and say it. If it's something that's egregious, if it's something that, you know, shot conscious, if it's something that's criminal, we're going to call it as such. And those who need to be held accountable are going to be held accountable. Um, the, the days of, you know, police just uh, doing what they want and not having repercussions are over. Uh, what we called, well, I don't say we, what I've heard called that thin blue line is not going to be acceptable. If you see somebody that's doing something wrong, you owe it to yourself and your community and your department 
to speak up. So we have to, you know, we have to be willing to cross that thin blue line and hold people accountable. So that's probably the biggest thing as far as that goes. Um, what else can we do? Again, we got to do better job of training, but we also have to have some reform. We have to look at other ways and dealing with people. Uh, how do we react to people? Um, you have to address behaviors as opposed to the person. Uh, I personally am one. I don't hold uh, any individual responsible for the actions of a group that they may or may not belong to. So whether that means uh, your cultural background, your race, your religion, uh, your gender preferences, uh, all those things you can't deal with at the individual level. You have to address behaviors when you have to, but you can't just lump people into groups and assume what behavior is going on. So that's where we got to change a little bit. And I think by and large, we still get those things right more often than not. And it's a matter of training. Um, sometimes you're going to get it wrong because what do we do? We hire human beings. And sometimes human beings do things that you just don't expect. Uh, but it's no different than, you know, doctors have assaulted their own patients. Uh, teachers have had relationships with students. So there's going to be some bad apples in whatever profession that you look at. Um, what, percent, what percentage, I don't know, is going to be greater in different professions. But when we focus on just trying to get the right people in there, I think that's the best answer. And then when people uh, show that they're not ready, that they're not worthy, then we got to go ahead and get them out of there. Um, so I think those are the things that are going to matter the most as far as building those things. Uh, back to the, I guess, the original thing as a, as a black man, uh, sometimes you're torn. But the one thing that I am each and every single day, if I get fired, if I get retired, um, whatever happens, if I move on to, to just do some other job, I'm always going to be a black man. And I've got kids uh, who are grown now. They're black kids. Uh, and I got to think about them. I have uh, stepchildren, you know, nieces, other family members. All of us are black, and I have to be able to understand the plight of my people, culturally speaking. But I also get torn a little bit because sometimes I do see uh, law enforcement uh, falling victim to the similar stereotypes that people have for other people. And it's not fair for anybody to say, you know, oh, the police just think, you know, all black men are threats and and lump us in and say we're just trigger happy. We're just trying to kill people based on the actions of a few. So you can't have it both ways. You can't make sweeping indictments, which I choose not to do in any aspect of my life, uh, whether it's by career, uh, race or any other, I guess, demographic that you want to look at. And I think that's important going forward that we make sure that the police aren't doing that, but we don't want to reverse that role either. I saw you speak at the university last October, um, and you, you, when you first sort of uh, started running for this position, and uh, you talked about the human side of policing, but I think something that struck a lot of us was your insistence on um, not cooperating with ICE. So I'd like to talk about that real um, quick, sort of just your reasons behind that, and also uh, how your past experiences in which you've seen people refuse treatment or certain access because they were in fear of their lives or in fear of getting deported, how that has um, shifted your view on ICE, and especially in, 
in in Athens, which is a very diverse community and uh, has um, a, a quite a substantial proportion of uh, citizens that are um, have uh, illegal statuses. I think it's, a, it's important to me to make that distinction because apparently I've lost a few friends or colleagues based on them hearing me say that I will not cooperate with ICE. And again, if that's all they're hearing and they're going to uh, cut me off from there, then so be it. I want people to understand where I'm coming from. It's not just a, a knee-jerk reaction. It's not about you know trying to say what the people want to hear. This is deep-rooted and my own culture and background and what I've seen and experienced. A lot of the things I've heard said about the Latino population are things that people have said about black culture and the black population. I've heard people say similar things about young black males that they're saying about Latinos, that uh, they're uh, killers, they're criminals, they're rapists, and well, they're people. So yeah, every now and then you're gonna find one that does fit that bill. But to just lump everybody in that and try to say, hey, we need uh, immigration, so we can't have people here. Uh, we got to get them out of the country. That is not fair on any level. And I'm not going to have anybody uh, discriminate against people uh, because I do have a recollection. You know, slavery wasn't as long ago as people like to make it seem. And then even when slavery, slavery was done, it wasn't done. Uh, there are some things that carried on for decades after that. And a lot of people will argue that it's still some evidence of it existing now. Uh, with that in mind, I'm not going to be part of that oppression. I'm not going to be part of that system that holds people down as opposed to trying to help people and lift them up. So some of the things I've seen uh, as a as a detective and, and working with domestic violence survivors, a lot of the times uh, the Latino community will not reach out when they're in an abusive relationship or when things are happening to their children because they're concerned if somebody's going to be deported, if somebody's going to, you know, lose another family member, how are they going to survive after that? So they sit by and they take that abuse because they don't want the family broken up. They don't want to not know how they survive. And that's one of the ways that domestic violence has gotten to the point we are because it's a psychological thing. People don't, see a way out. They don't understand how they're going to survive if this person who may be the only person that's making money in the household. So how are they going to survive if this person, A, goes to jail, B, ends up deported and can't come back? So those are things that we all consider. Uh, my time, I, I worked for a while in Charlotte as a dispatcher. And one trend then in the early 2000s were uh, people selling phone cards to get, you know, minutes on phones so they could actually, you know, call their loved ones or whatever, because a lot of people didn't need to have a landline or didn't have long distance. So this was a big moneymaker. And a lot of folks who would do this were uh, Latino community members. And I guess people, the criminals figured out that the Latinos were doing it and they would actually notice uh, the signs in the windows of their apartments or houses that said they sell phone cards and they targeted them because of why? Because one, they didn't feel that if they got targeted that they would call the police because they were afraid of being deported. But also, a lot of Latino community members, they don't trust banks. So they knew that they can target them and they would likely get cash and not have to worry about the police following up on the investigation. So there's all types of detrimental reactions that come from the situation with ICE and 
it, it's basically a fear situation. And I'm not a person who likes to, uh, I guess, rule by fear. And I think that's what we've been doing with the Latino communicate, uh, community. That's what uh, minorities, as well as just the impoverished in general, have been victims of. And we need to find ways to, again, build those bridges, to build those relationships so we can have that trust and we can actually do that as a partnership as opposed to, you know, somebody just literally ruling over somebody else because that's not what police were intended to be. On the topic of building that trust, which is a, a common theme of your platform, um, I want to go back to your, your early experiences with policing and uh, talk about just uh, early um, the presence of police in schools, which is for many like one of the first uh, experiences people have with police. Uh, there's, there's a statistic that says 1.7 million students are in schools with police but no counselors. And uh, just, again, it goes back to how police have become a, a Swiss army knife and they, they have these roles that uh, may be more adequately suited for another department. Uh, for you, what is the role of police in a school or in uh, early life? I think it's actually uh, some people uh, I've been talking to and we share a lot of things in common, a lot of agreements, but uh, a lot of folks I know are pushing towards getting police out of schools. And I understand their viewpoint, but where I differ is I understand what the school resource officer program is meant to be. It's not meant to be about arresting kids. It's not meant to be about fear or intimidation in the schools. And those areas that that is what it has become are failing. Uh, the real mission of school resource officers are to be just that, resources for the community, for the school. Uh, I approached when I was a resource officer at Cedar Shows, which is how uh, Georgia is one of the states that actually requires you to go through training before you can be a resource officer. And the standpoint is looking at those relationships between the community and law enforcement. And if you start off dealing with children, you understand uh, that they're there to help you. Uh, I think that's important. And what we do mostly in schools is one, we're actually supposed to teach them classes and just be there as a resource for the kids. But we're also a source for kids to go when they have questions, if they don't know the law, if something's going on at home and they're trying to understand how to get help. We're a resource for that. So it's not about arresting kids. Uh, there are some things that happen that, that you just can't cross that line. If you bring a gun to school, the police have to deal with that. If you have drugs, they have to deal with that. If you, you know, uh, get into a violent altercation with people, well, we might have to deal with that. But ultimately, our role is to make sure the safety is there and allow school administration to deal with any issues that aren't directly criminal in nature. And I think that's a focus that's been lost. And in some areas, they have over-policed in the schools. And those things, I would say, we need to scale back and we need to figure out how to get back to just being that resource officer. Uh, in athens Clark County, you see most of the time, if you uh, want to know what really goes on, spend a day with one of the school resource officers. Just kind of watch a day in the life. Uh, I was there at high school, the ones we have in middle school. I could call them by names. And uh, people will go back to the schools after they graduate and see what officer such and such is doing, what's up with you, and, and check in with them. Because day to day, uh, they resources for them to go to. And the kids, they come up to them and 
they share stories, they talk because it's really about safety. There might be, you know, a, a shots fired call. Well, by the time somebody uh, is out of panic mode enough to call 911, how many like dozens of people could have been shot by then? And then the officers have to come from the station to this area. And so that might be another few minutes. And then we got to start gathering intel. So these are the things that having an officer in the schools limits, and it helps with the safety. Yes, we do have to do a better job on what resource officers are tasked to do. That Swiss Army knife is not going to be there. But there's a place for them to be a bit of a social worker in the schools because kids will get those relationships. And sometimes you can get a kid to tell you, hey, you know, this kid over here has a gun or this person over here has been feeling suicidal. How can we get them some help? And I think that's key and that's crucial going forward. So again, those relationships are important, but it's how we utilize them. I think that's been uh, somewhat of a fail, but not entirely because I think those kids really understand. Lastly on this topic, one thing that I hate to see, uh, we'll be in the grocery store and some kid is acting up and his parents says, hey, I'm gonna get this officer to arrest you. So there's a lot of things that are working against cops. And sometimes we get those type of throwaway comments and it's really, really negative. Uh, I, I never let parents get away with saying that. I go and talk to them every now and then. I probably snap and I say something I shouldn't, but I tell them, I say, look, you know, one day your kid might need some help and we don't need them to be afraid of the police. Uh, with all the images and all the things that go on social media and the times that we have gotten it wrong in the past, we don't need, you know, parents making kids also fear the police because at the end of the day, I truly believe that uh, more often than not, a police officer is the best person to go to when you want some help. Even if it's not something they can directly do, they can guide you to the place that you need to be. So in the past few weeks, um, I'm sure you've had uh, quite some celebration because uh, you uh, narrowly beat out the incumbents in 2001, Ira Edwards. Um, uh, really a, a pretty close vote, but I think a lot of people are very excited because uh, it has been nearly two decades. This was his fifth term, so uh, things are pretty stagnant. And uh, among some of the problems in the um, Athens Sheriff's Office, there was a bombshell report in 2018, uh, an audit which found uh, quite a few shortcomings. And also there was a uh, uh, collaboration with ICE in the uh, previous uh, or current administration. And, um, and, and finally, there, there, were, uh, there was money accepted for, uh, from, from organizations um, that, uh, like bail bondsmen. So can you talk about um, why you think you were able to win this primary? Do you think people were wanted that change? And can you also talk about um, what you're looking for in November, who you're going to be against, and um, what your, your campaign is doing to prepare for that? So I think, yeah, I mean, uh, I'll start with but this, just the, the sheer time frame. 20 years is a long time to do anything, uh, especially the same thing uh, year after year. So I think people just wanting change is part of it. But I also think that the timing was right, uh, that the message that I had, you know, a building community trust, getting back to those relationships, to uh, transparency with the community and getting pro programs started that, will help the community and lead to fewer people being arrested, fewer people being in jail, and people just being treated better in general. 
So I think the message was out there. And sometimes you got to go back to things that you may have learned uh, when you're a kid. So culturally and teachings from my mom, and my family and my teachers, even in Gary and elementary school, uh, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Treating everybody with dignity and respect is a key component of my campaign. And that's really who I am as a person. So I think probably the biggest factor, aside from people wanting change, I think people saw that I am a genuine person. And the message that I'm talking to you today is the same thing that I've uh, said to everybody else. It might be slightly different words or it might be in a different order, but it's the same message. Uh, you're not going to find me, you know, speaking to one group, just, you know, trying to cater to what, you know, I think that they want to hear. Uh, my message is going to be my message. And I've had some things that people disagree with me on. But I also put out there that if you just talk to people that you agree with, what do you ever learn? How do you ever grow? So I reach out and I'll talk to people that I disagree with all the time. Uh, sometimes uh, nothing changes, but that doesn't mean that that's uh, an adversarial relationship. And I think that's what we got to get back to in America. Just because you disagree with people doesn't mean that you hate people. Um, I think, and this is a funny little anecdote, but a lot of times it, it gets to being Democrat versus Republican or liberal versus conservative. When at the end of the day, there are some similarities, but we've gotten to a point in society that sometimes you can say something like, oh, I love my mom. You can say, I love my mom on Mother's Day. And then somebody's going to say, oh, you don't love your dad. Oh, you don't love my mom. And we got to cut this out. We can't be all over the place. We can't be so just, you know, nitpicky with everything. Sometimes you can say a statement, but because you're for one thing, doesn't automatically mean you're against anything else. Both things can be true going forward. And I think that's important. And I think that's part of the message that I bring. We can change. We can have some reforms in law enforcement without getting rid of or defunding law enforcement. I think we can get a lot better. Uh, and I'll be the first to admit, there's some things that we do need to get better at, but uh, you got to give us a chance to do that. I think there's been a lot of things suggested and I think we're going down those paths. And I just say, hey, give me a chance. I think I can fix things here in athens Clark County. And I think we can be a model for, you know, sheriff's offices and police departments around the country. Um, as far as my, I have one opponent uh, that's running as a Republican in November. I haven't talked to him greatly about his platforms. Um, I'm really just going to focus on running my race. Uh, I, I beat a guy who's been in office for 20 years, and I think the people like what I've been talking about, and they like my platforms. So my next step is really just to branch out to, I guess, pare down and show people exactly what the plans are and show them an image of what I see as the future of the Clark County Sheriff's Office. Uh, before we go, I have one thing I want to hit on, and then Alex has another question. Uh, throughout this interview, we talked a lot about uh, police and community. Uh, I, I have a question about uh, within the police office itself. Uh, a main part of your campaign is also addressing the high turnover rates, especially among uh, new officers. How, uh, how do you plan to increase this retention rate so I, I think, again, it goes back to I have an extensive background in uh, training and education. I actually went to school, uh, studied speech communication. My original idea was to be a secondary school 
instructor. Uh, it didn't come out to that. I just got into law enforcement, but every, whether it was dispatch, uh, whether it's been as an officer, a training officer, I've always elevated to be one of those people who actually uh, trains other officers, other dispatchers. Uh, I've trained uh, in South Dakota, as far as South Dakota, and learned some things and brought those back to athens Clark County philosophies. Uh, so I've got a lot of training programs, I think, that can help out going forward. And I think training is going to be one big reason that people are willing to come and then to stay with the Clark County Sheriff's Office once I'm elected. Uh, I think it's been an unsafe environment at times, and that's why people have left. Uh, I've heard tales of people only having like two or three days of training in the jail, and then they're there working by themselves. That's not, not safe for anybody. It's not safe for the staff. It's not safe for the inmates, and we got to make things better. So training programs that address that issue are going to help people feel more confident safer in doing their jobs and they're going to stay longer uh, they're going to end up getting better pay because of that and the other thing is even with that there's uh, such shortages right now that people are forced to work a lot of overtime and a big plan i have is to give people a chance to do other things in other areas so you won't just work the jail Every time you come in, you might get to rotate. You can work the road. You can work the courthouse. We might have some other assignments that we have. That's going to break some of the stress off. And it's going to also allow for people to have more time with their family. Uh, that's one big thing for me. I have a, a big family support system. It's not a huge family like I had when I was a child, but the family members I have and I keep with, they're a big part of my everyday life. Uh, they're the reason that I do it. Uh, just quick. Uh, statement. So I went to be a school resource officer. Yes, I wanted to make a difference. Yes, I wanted to help out in schools. I've always cared about kids. Uh, when I was the resource officer at Cedar Shows, one deciding factor for me actually going to that particular school was that my son was enrolled there at the time. And because of all these other different things, you know, I've missed, you know, football games, tennis matches, you know, some school plays that I really wish I could, but I felt like I was doing the right thing in the community, making it safer for my kids. But that was an opportunity for me to get to see my kid every day. And my time there, oh my God, that was, that was just the best feeling in the world to actually be there and do my job and have other kids like me and then have my son say, that's my dad. So that was a proud moment for me as well. Um, so I think all those things are going to help us do what we need to do as far as uh, recruiting people. Again, getting that, st that stigma out of being in law enforcement out and have actual community members. Because when you live in your community, when you're invested, you want things done certain ways. And you literally, you don't have to imagine, well, what if this person I'm dealing with is my sister, uh, my mother? my cousin, because odds are it's going to be if you're policing in the same place that you live. So that's the ultimate goal, to get more buy-in from the community, to have more community members come work with us. And I think that's going to help people stay too, because you're in the community and you're trusted and those relationships are there. And that's the, to me, that's the magic pill going forward. All right, Sergeant Williams, you've been a dispatch and uh, you've, you've also been a police officer, an instructor and uh and uh, detective just recently if people like what they've heard today how can they help your campaign and also uh how can they go about uh, voting this fall 
So uh, if and, and again, hopefully everybody voted last time, but I know the numbers are kind of low and you can't always count on that. But if you haven't registered to vote, uh, check online. You can actually just uh, check the, the main web page is to check my voter status, my voter page. If you type that in the Google, you can search and you can see if you're registered. You can check and see where you're going to vote, where you're supposed to vote. Uh, there's a lot of ways that you can. You can request an absentee ballot if you're still concerned about the coronavirus and going out in public as much. Uh, you can do that by mail. You're going to have to request it. They're not just going to send them to you this time from what I hear, but you can still sign into that page and request that. Uh, November 3rd, you can go to the polls. You can vote. Uh, so those things are there, but make sure that you register. And even if you don't vote for me, I think it's important that everybody vote. Uh, I want you to vote for me. But at the end of the day, I want everybody to vote because I want to know that the people's voice is being heard. As far as me, uh, my webpage is www.johnqforsheriff.com. Uh, you can also get there as johnqforathens.com. Uh, on Facebook, you can go and do at johnqforsheriff. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to get me. The same things are on Twitter. All those pages are there. Uh, you'll find YouTube videos. Uh, the biggest thing to help word of mouth just tell people hey i heard about this guy john q he's got some great ideas uh he, he says he's a sheriff for the people and that means all people and i'm going to be approachable as sheriff i'm going to be that person you'll see me out in the streets you do now uh when restaurants are open and they're really safe you'll see me out in restaurants you may anyway every now and then i'll take a risk because uh through this whole COVID thing i've had to work uh so i'll probably take a few more risks than than some family members, but I'm available. Uh, call, right? There's donations uh, available on the site. Uh, it's politics. I hate doing it, but yeah, we do need cash for signs and for advertisement. So if you're able to uh, give a dollar, two dollars, two thousand dollars, like twenty five hundred is the max. I'm not asking for that, but if you got it and you want to, we'll take it and we'll uh, do what we need to do to make this change coming because we do need reform and policing and that's a big part of what I'm doing. So police, law enforcement reform, uh, criminal justice reform, uh, trying to get people into diversion places, into mental health treatment, alcohol and drug abuse treatment, as opposed to simply just arresting everybody because I don't believe that we can simply arrest our way out of problems. We've tried that and we still get the same thing. So we have to think some new ideas and we have to be willing to push forward. So if you like that message, look more, read more, uh, educate yourself and go out and vote come November. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Finch. If you like our work, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Finch Podcast. Additionally, check out our new website at www.thefinchpodcast.com. In addition to where you're listening right now, you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and all major streaming platforms. Next time on The Finch, we're back with another COVID-19 series episode with Dr. Laura Phillips-Sawyer, a visiting professor from Harvard Business School. See you all then.